Hey there, welcome back. We are on episode 6 of season 3 of the Silicon Sasquatch podcast, which you probably know if you're listening to this already, since uh, that kind of took some action on your part, so thank you for that. Uh, I am your host for today, Nick Cummings, and I'm joined by uh, Aaron Thayer. Hello. And Spencer Tordoff. Hey. And we're here to talk about this game called Bioshock Infinite, which... uh, kind of came and went nobody really said anything about it yeah i did not hear anything from anybody on bioshock infinite it was another really big indie success i think yeah it was uh, was it jonathan blow who made this one too yeah, that sounds right yeah yeah no, it was jonathan on staff who was on blow at um irrational i think who thought about the plot so yeah bioshock infinite as far as games that we've been waiting a long time to kind of see come to fruition this is uh, kind of at the longer end of, of anticipation. Uh, pretty much since Bioshock came out in 2007 in August, there's th- this is this is actually Ken Levine's uh, next game after that. It took him almost three six years to, to put out a new game with, with the uh, team at Irrational. So yeah, we've been waiting a long time for this. I personally have been waiting a long time for this after I was uh, largely really uh, impressed with what I saw in Bioshock. And uh, yeah, we wanted to spend some time today talking about what makes this game so so important in a lot of ways, uh, and I guess really how we what we thought of it now that it actually you know it has been played through, and uh, to take some time as well to talk about a couple things that uh, really kind of caused some discussion. One of those being the issue of uh, violence and gore in the game, and the second being uh, that ending. So, uh, but first, I'd love to start with some general impressions. So, uh, uh, hang on, just to warn anybody who hasn't finished the game yet. There are going to be spoilers in this. If you have not completed the game and you don't want it spoiled for yourself, turn this off now, finish the game, and then turn it back on. Uh, yes, spoiler one is Andrew Ryan was actually your father in the first Bioshock. Oh, thank you. You're you're really helping here. Oh, come on. That was seven, six years old. <laughs> also, if you have a Symphony of the Night save on your hard drive, uh, Andrew Ryan will call you out as a Castlevania fan. Yes. <laughs> Actually, that happens in this podcast, too, if we detect a, a save. Kojima is kind of a prolific guy when it comes to pimping Konami stuff. So yeah. he's also involved with this podcast as an executive producer, I believe. How are we not getting paid for that? I don't know. Uh, well, we got him a $4,000 sequin t-shirt. Well, we're somehow being another promotional outlet for Metal Gear Solid Five, even though <laughs> we don't want to be. Like, we just don't know it yet. So Yeah, if you actually take our logo, you can see Solid Snake <laughs> written in the uh, outline. <laughs> We are the phantom pain in the ass. All right. So, all right, Nick, bring us back to uh, what you were saying. Yeah. So, if you haven't played the game, go play it. Why are you listening to this? You know not to. You know better. Because we're gonna jump right into some impressions here. So, uh, Aaron, what stood out to you the most? All right. So maybe it's a problem that has been touched on several times, mostly by Nick. But the idea of the AAA game as it exists now in 2013, and uh, is it relevant? Is it necessary? Uh, are we tired of it? Now, I think Bioshock is kind of this weird exception. Um, even the second one, which wasn't made by Irrational, it was made by kind of a bunch of studios at 2K, which is the parent company that publishes the Bioshock series proper. But it is this big sort of philosophical, ideological, interesting series that also has a lot of people getting shot in the face with weapons. So it's a shooter which is a great thing for mass market appeal and probably why it has this this weird role. I think all of us on the staff kind of look to it to justify video games, um, maybe not as art to get into that stupid debate 
especially after Ebert just died this last week, which is tragic in a different way, but um, to not think of it as just another game that has people shooting at each other and it doesn't really have any substance. Bioshock, the first one had substance, the second one did too in its own way, so we expect Bioshock Infinite to have the same. And overall, I think it did, but I also, I guess, through my own, maybe this is the, the negative aspect of success, but I expected it to maybe do more for me emotionally than I was fair to the game. After Bioshock kind of turned my perceptions around, not having been someone who read Ayn Rand or looked into that sort of stuff before ever in my reading career, I was opened up to a new world of this interesting sort of philosophical concept in the form of a game where people get shot in the face. Bioshock Infinite, then for me, was expected to live up to that role of introducing me to new theories and worlds and interesting stuff and also be within the framework of just a regular old video game. So if I have to give my general impressions and then we can dissect stuff over the course of this podcast, I think that I honestly felt uh, let down by the mechanics, by the shooting, the vigors, uh, also known as plasmids in the Bioshock world um, were great, and there were cool combinations with that. So gameplay side of the vigors and powers were fine, but it was a generic shooter. The weapons really weren't that exciting. I never upgraded them once. I just spent all my money on uh, vigor upgrades, which is just a playstyle thing. But I kind of was more doing that as a reflex to get to the next part of the plot and this over uh, overall expectation that I was going to be blown away by just the story, which I was in most aspects, but I also think that it kind of had its own head up its digital ass a little bit in a way. So that's not a bad thing, but um, I guess, so to summarize that, I think it was a great game and I want to play it again to reiterate some ideas I have about it, but I think that its own shooting mechanics got in the way of it just being the game that we can all focus on and go, hey, this is where video games can actually do some great adult ideas and um, progress the industry as a result, kind of like Bioshock, the first one did. Yeah. How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Uh, That was maybe a little harsh there. No, go, go for it, man. I had none of those complaints. I mean, I thought the I thought the shooter mechanics were ranging from solid to extremely fun. I thought it had a, a decent variety of weapons. The vigors uh, added a nice variety to it. I reveled in the combat, not as much as I reveled in the world, but both were very very satisfying. Sorry to jump in, but did you feel like the combat fit the world? I don't see how it wouldn't. I, I guess what I'm saying is like uh, Columbia is this very fantastical kind of you know kind of creepily real surreal kind of uh, place just like rapture was in bioshock uh and infinite as a game taking place in the city in the sky really capitalized on that by i think turning up from previous games in that style of gameplay uh the number of enemies you're fighting at once and also your mobility and kind of just the, the pace of combat was cranked up as well so i guess maybe i'm maybe i'm derailing a bit here too much but like no pun intended for the Skyrails. Hi-oh. But did you feel like... Because there was a deliberate change in the combat, right? Between Bioshock, Bioshock 2, and then going to Infinite. Did you feel like that was an appropriate... Like, the, Did the combat feel like it fit the story, the ecosystem, the environment? Yeah. I don't. Well, goddammit. <laughs> Interesting. Spencer, uh, I'd love to hear kind of more your thoughts on like 
the game and then we can kind of try and figure that out because I have some thoughts as well. My feelings on Bioshock Infinite, um, my kind of encapsulating one that leaps to mind is not my words, but my phrasing on it. With Bioshock, uh, the original, this is all games are was more or less the root theme that you could draw from it. And with Bioshock Infinite, it was this is all games are. It was a very captivating beautiful experience that could not really exist in any other medium. The art direction was just incredible. The city itself was so vibrant that I I pretty much fell in love with it. It was everything I wanted Rapture to be in the first one. Uh and then the mechanics, like I said, I they were they were very good. They were maybe not as transcendental as the rest of the game, but I like to go really fast. And I like to shoot people in the head with a revolver. And that, yeah, that is, those are things I like in shooters. And Bioshock or Infinite delivered on all fronts for that. So I don't know what else to say. It was, it was fantastic. So I want to just jump in briefly on the the violence because I I feel like I agree with both of you. And it's, uh, that's where I'm kind of conflicted. I really, really like the combat and the way it fit into the pace of the gameplay. I thought it was every every fight made sense in terms of where you were at in the narrative, the you know, and the the rising and the lessening tension as the narrative progressed. The fights were all very well designed. The arenas are great. I love the Skyrim mechanic and how that fit into like how you approach to fight. The game does a really good job of making you feel empowered while still feeling threatened. Uh, there, you know, I have I have a couple complaints about little nits here and there. Like I don't think the shield was particularly well implemented, um, but as far as the feel of the guns, the sound work, and the design of the encounters, and how, really, more than anything, how the uh, vigors and the weapons paired to become much more valuable than either one on its own, I thought that was all very well executed. And for what it is, for, for a first-person shooter of you against hordes of crazy bad people, you know, it's, it's one of the best implementations of that model I've ever seen. That being said, from the very first moment where you kill somebody in that game, and it's pretty early on, when you're at the lottery... And they they bring up the couple on stage, and you're like asked to throw rocks at them. At that point, you you know respond. I I, I would say you respond in turn by uh, brutally mashing that tool into that guy's face and uh, cutting another guy's head off. Forgive me, but like it's it's a pretty fucked up thing to see. Like the game <laughs> goes from like you're this tourist in this you know kind of fantastic, obviously really messed up, uh, racist, uh, jingoistic world, and it jumps from that to like. Okay, now you're gonna like mutilate people and just start murdering all these folks. And like, yeah, it's self defense, whatever, at least some of it. But the gore in that game is just so overwrought to an almost comical degree. And like, the sensation I got was like one of like, I, I was like laughing to myself in a really kind of like, holy shit, that just happened. Like, not like in a elated way, but like, a, oh my god, I can't believe they just did that kind of way and that's kind of what persisted throughout the game was this sort of like hyperactive violence that just doesn't really it's not grounded in reality in any way and it kind of almost detracted for me from the experience like did i really need to be killing these people for the game to have tension and did it need to be so insanely overwrought that's where i i totally uh, concur i want to piggyback off of your statement with the violence because i guess i was expecting ever since it was unveiled a long time ago the game um, of having the immediate imagery from some of the first playthroughs and, and screenshots of the racist 1912 uh, xenophobic mentality. And that's something, a period in history, I studied a lot in school because it was very interesting to me. And I was expecting more of that. But, you know, 
as we get into it, you kind of discover that it's not just about a adventure in 1912. You're really going across all ages and times in a, in a way. So that's that's a separate thing. But I guess I was so hopeful to see this interesting time period portrayed in a game even knowing it would be violent, but I think what really detracted from me overall, not to open up a whole other discussion, but that violence was so overwrought that it took away from the more racially charged aspects that I thought were going to be handled kind of more intriguingly in a video game, because that's never really been done, aside from people on Xbox Live calling each other expletives and racial slurs. So I was hoping that, um, and you'll see it throughout the game when you play Infinite, different pictures of, you know, preserving the white race and, you know, keeping out the foreigners and the foreign hordes and all this stuff. You'll see that imagery. So you as an individual can react to that how you want. You can just put in the context that, hey, this Comstock guy who runs uh, Columbia is insane and just a bad man. So, you know, just I'm going to go kill him throughout the game at some point. That's my goal. Or we could have had more of a discussion about that, but that's completely put aside just as a matter of fact. It's like, hey, it's 1912, you know, forget about the Native Americans and all the Chinese people and stuff. And we're just going to go, you know, shoot some more dudes in the face and cut their heads off with the, the skyhook tool. So that's where I felt let down because I was unfairly, again, expecting a lot more from a game that in its previous incarnations had touched on so many different concepts to me that I thought Columbia was going to be more of a, a palette to discuss these big issues by presenting all of this advertising towards how messed up and racist Comstock and his, his flock is, or are, I should say. Uh, but that never happened. It was just, well, hey, you, you know, you're going to save Elizabeth and just go and get more powers and kill people sort of thing. So that's where I felt let down with the combat. I feel like then we had really different experiences because... Yeah, I'll admit that the uh, the opening scene, the only decapitation, I think, in the game was a bit overkill. But from the moment I arrived, you know, I'm, I'm bombarded with this religious, almost Mormon imagery of the Founding Fathers as gods and Comstock being a prophet and being baptized and everything. And then as I walked through listening to what these people were saying, I was like, why don't I have a gun yet? Because I want to fire it in the air and make them all start running around screaming. Because these people are terrible. That was that was kind of my impression. You say that there wasn't any high concept being tossed around in the setting. And I thought that was nothing but that. From the jingoist like, Boy Scouts and the arcade that they had for them. To the slums for the workers. To Fink's factory where he's he's giving his propaganda pieces on how not everyone gets to be a lion, but you should be okay with that. And how he talks about uh, vacation and weekends are anarchist talk, and, and that's awful. Right. I guess I guess that's the thing, though, is those are concepts have, that have been retread by films, which we've said that this is a game that couldn't exist in any other medium, from things like Chaplin's Modern Times about workers' rights onward. But I guess that's my, my concern is, as a larger point, isn't that the level of maturity we shouldn't expect where... Like you said, you're going through hearing all these racist people, which definitely got to me, but that's the expected goal. And then all you want to do is just now shoot them in the face because it's a video game and that's what you're going to do. I guess I knew what I was getting into, but I expected a little bit more maturity from that topic, if you see what I'm saying. I suppose, but I don't know. For me, 
just the setting was so vibrant and so detailed and just so rich every part of it that I didn't I didn't feel like the violence was taking away from it. The setting was just that involved that I felt it was nicely paced with the combat because I was taking a good half hour uh 45 minutes between every combat session because there was so much to just wander around and look at and listen to. So I think I would agree with that in in that it fit the pacing and it really did like it added a good dramatic tension when when combat did come in, but when you look objectively at like what the game was saying, how it was presenting its world, and how you moved through it, did the, did the violence that you were committing to get through it did did it feel like it fit for you? And it, it like it sounds like it did, and that's totally cool. I just I think that's the real issue that we were trying to. Yeah, I didn't think it was that out of spec. Now, granted, I primarily play first person shooters. I play a lot of first person shooters, so it's entirely possible that I'm so jaded I didn't notice, but. It just did not seem that out there, and it it wasn't like we were playing postal or anything. It was it was a fantasy ish uh, shooter with a lot of fast pacing, and maybe it was kind of gory, but I played gorier. So I I want to kind of highlight one thing that stood out to me, which is I I came into this game from the context of Bioshock, the original, and that was not by any means a uh, peaceful game. Right. No, it's not. It had a very similar style of insane, over-the-top violence with lots of, like, squishy gore and blood spurting out. And... But there were insane people coming after you. It was a little bit different. Well, I argue there are insane people coming after you in Bioshock Infinite, too. Uh, no question about that. But the issue is that Bioshock, I thought, was novel, and many people would say its biggest, you know, the thing it's going to be remembered for was the way that at that midpoint of the game, when you finally do reach Andrew Ryan and you realize that you've actually been played all along, it wasn't just about the the character in that game being manipulated. It was you, the player, being manipulated into committing these acts of violence and like seeing that the game can take away that control, that sort of uh, morality at a moment's notice, and you're kind of at its mercy. And I thought that kind of the biggest, you know, F you to the player was that after that point, you still have to go kill a bunch of crazy people to go fight some terrible boss and beat that game. And everybody did. So I thought that it was almost like Almost in the same way that um, Spec Ops The Line made you feel like a monster for killing people at several points in that game and kind of did a good job of building up the sort of insanity of war theme throughout. I was hoping Bioshock Infinite was going to do something similar where it'd be like, okay, we brought back the same crazy violence, but you've had this lesson, this experience of like seeing what the Andrew Ryan encounter meant, what this whole objectivist thing is versus, you know, free will versus like being enslaved and what that nature is like. It seemed funny to me and kind of like a missed opportunity for the violence in Bioshock event to be so directly descended from Bioshock. It felt like that was like such, because it's such a big role of the game, because conflict resolution is a big part of any game, the fact that they kind of almost didn't seem to care about saying anything about that was a little shocking to me. The only feedback you really get on the reprehensible nature of what you're doing is from Elizabeth, who kind of like will gasp or like hide for a bit, but then she goes off and helps you kill more people. So she kills someone herself throughout the game. That's true. Okay, I can see that as as maybe being a point if you were expecting a, a Bioshock-like twist. But if the twist had not existed in, uh, in Bioshock, the original, then it would have been substantially less satisfying to me. Because I was let down, I suppose, by the, by the world. Um, I wanted there to be more of it. I wanted to see more of it, and I wanted to see what was alive. So... I don't think the point of Infinite was 
uh, was to have a twist. And of course there wasn't really, well, I mean, the ending is, is kind of out there and we can talk about that in a bit, but I thought just the experience of being in Colombia was to be the takeaway point. And maybe the violence doesn't fit within that. Maybe it does. It really depends on your perspective, but yeah, I didn't feel there would had to be a, a thematic, like hanging a lantern on the violence by saying, Oh yeah, you didn't have a choice. I didn't think that was necessary because of what you were seeing, just because of what you were taking in from playing the game between the parts where you're, you know, skating around really fast and punching people in the face and so forth. One of the, I guess, last things I want to mention about the violence, because we should probably transition. I'll stop being an apologist for it here, I guess. <laughs> Is, you know, just like you, I play a lot of first-person shooters, and I'm not desensitized. I know you're not either, even though you were joking about that, but... I guess when I look back, and those of you who have finished the game, I recommend looking at the first few playthroughs of the game from like E3's past. 2011 is a big one. I think 2009 or 10. But when I was looking at the 2011 video, there was a part where you're uh, guiding Elizabeth, which you do throughout the game, but luckily she's not a distraction or a hurdle. You don't actually have to take care of her. You're walking up the stairs, and there's one of the Vox Populi, who are the um, uh, people against Comstock. And this guy stares at you in this 2011 video and starts questioning you. And you, being Booker, you, in this video, point your gun at him, and then he runs off. And it's more, like, there's more of an interaction going, like, who are you? What are you doing? And then you threaten him. There's a voice-acted part of that. Elizabeth tells you not to do that. And then he runs away. But then when you actually fast forward to playing the game now, for me what felt as a letdown and then in the, the, the counterpoint to the violence was Columbia starts out being this this big world. Um, your first introduction to it is just as entrancing as Rapture, seeing you know, hearing this hymn, this gorgeous vocal hymn of this religious context and coming from this rocket pod into this beautiful sky world and seeing all these people around, like you've mentioned before, Spencer, this realization of what Rapture probably was when it started, but we, in the first Bioshock, got there when it was all destroyed. You start out in Columbia seeing it at the height of its uh, prime. People are around, there's barbershop quartet singing The Beach Boys' God Only Knows, which ties into the later plot. But eventually, when you start getting into the game and the actual mechanics and taking Elizabeth to her fate, everywhere is empty. Like, you may start out in the slums, but then you fire a shot or you get in combat. Then everyone empties out, pretty much. And everything empties out. The city just ends up becoming the same function and vessel as Rapture did, where you're just then fighting insane crazy people and all the pretext of hey, this is a crazy city of full of these racist, interesting people, and why are they like this sort of thing, blah, blah, so on and so forth, just falls away and it becomes the same play place as any other shooter. So that's where I felt let down. Um, and that's where with the violence, it was fine. I got through the game, but I mostly focused on using the vigors instead of the guns because they were far more interesting to me as a mechanic, same with the skyhook, than just shooting people again to get to the next plot point in the story. Crows are game of the year, by the way. Exactly. The crow traps, like, that's pretty much game of the year right there, actually. <laughs> yes, 100%. Yeah, when you just chain them, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Man, crows. Fucking crows, dude. Maybe there was a social commentary there about Jim Crow, murder of crows. I don't think so. Oh, 
Okay, all right. No, but A for effort. I suppose it is a little, very mildly ironic that the Crow Vigor is used by the guys who worship John Wilkes. And they have Ku Klux Klan hoods on. They're purple, but, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah, that John Wilkes Booth statue (laughs) covered in bird shit was a sight (laughs) to behold. That was a weird part of the game. That was. That's, That's what I'm talking about. That was really, really interesting, to me anyway. Yeah, no, I think uh, as far as like taking a period of history and really kind of playing up the different, let's say, let's say like what makes that period distinct and then like playing up its its extremes and stereotypes to a whole new level, like which is what Bioshock did. Uh, Infinite took that even further, and I think to really great effect. Like I really loved um, the set pieces that were built around the American history as interpreted by Columbia, like the Battle of Wounded Knees that you go through, the whole museum. The war hero who tried to stand up to Comstock's uh, zealotry and all that, like it's, you can kind of see how this stuff all ties into political movements from the early, from the turn of the 20th century, and uh, just the whole idea of like American exceptionalism is uh, definitely on display. And I have to, I just have to mention, I am not a person who keeps up with his heritage at all, not by any, like I know my percentages, I don't know any uh, of my lineage in any of the countries of my origin, but I'm a quarter Irish and I got offended a lot <laughs> in certain parts of the game. And I am, I'm not that Irish or anything. I kind of look Irish, but <laughs> yeah, like uh, th- there were whole parts about, you know, there was a couple mentions in there of the Irish. I'm just like, fuck you, man. I find that funny. I, I'm <laughs> like a quarter Irish and I didn't even, I, I guess I expected that. I was waiting for the stuff about <laughs> the the Irish guys i mean i I sort of expected it uh just from you know the era it's set in but i mean because you know there was horrible things done to uh the irish in that time period but yeah i I just didn't anticipate it and then it happened i was like what the fuck what so yeah so we we've touched on the violence and the mechanic parts but i mean what what else sticks out from the game to us i think the the biggest thing that Infinite shares with Bioshock uh, and yet kind of diverges from completely is uh, the role of this partner Elizabeth in the game. Uh, in that the obvious corollary would be, especially when looking at Bioshock 2 where you play as a big daddy, the corollary there would be the little sisters that inhabit Rapture and like collect the Eve and are basically essential to your survival but also need to be exploited for you to make it through the game. It's kind of a weird relationship. Uh, it's ambiguous in terms of its morality. That's a big part of what makes it fascinating. So your role with Elizabeth is, uh, I think, what made the game most interesting to me. It made me. It, it's what drove me to want to see its conclusion, not to see what would happen when, like, when Booker confronts Comstock. Uh, obviously, you know that's going to happen. You know how it's going to end, more or less. But seeing Elizabeth's reactions as a kind of like a mirror for the player in a lot of ways, and also as the catalyst for a lot of the events and the change in the game, I think adds a whole new dimension to. Um, the events in the game that kind of shine, shines a mirror on things that was missing from Bioshock. Obviously, her characters brilliantly realized realized her. The acting is great. The uh, modeling and animation of her character she looks like so very expressive. It's kind of almost like it's it's very comfortably sitting in the middle of the uncanny valley where it doesn't look realistic, but like her mannerisms and behavior are so like defined that she she really does seem larger than life. It's almost Disney esque. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've heard it described that way. Uh, I would put her up there with Alex from Half-Life 2, uh, maybe even a little better, just in terms of character, a companion that's really able to evoke emotion, able to make you question things in the world a bit more. 
uh, and actually support you in combat. There have been some jokes about it, but she was immensely useful whenever I was playing, uh, you know, throwing ammo and health packs at me. Well, she's no Yorda from Eco. Yeah, well, that would have been boring. <laughs> well, yeah, the eco was already done. So. I, the, the parallel I thought of actually was Clementine from uh, The Walking Dead, in the sense that like she's kind of your moral compass and she's kind of at your mercy. And because of later revelations, oh. Oh. you know, with <laughs> with Elizabeth, I thought she was great from a gameplay perspective. I don't know. I I feel like I'm going to come off sounding just overall harsh to the game, but I I love the shit out of it. I'm going to play it again, and I think it's, as one review put it, the best sort of end to this generation, the last good big game example of what this last generation of games has been capable of and transitioned to. But still with Elizabeth, I guess I bought too much into the propaganda of Irrational of how you know, this interactive companion will change the way you feel about games and the emotionality of every interaction she does and, you know, her mannerisms and stuff. In the end, she just became another, like, hey, here's another coin every five minutes, Booker, and here's another salt refill and stuff. She just kind of became repetitive in that sense. So, like you're saying, Nick, she was my drive to get to more points in the story, not the confrontation with Comstock, but... I think that it was a little bit overwrought to have all these expectations of her being the best thing ever. I think it's another one of those like lesser of the few evils of companions go. She was good, but I think that's unfair to the game because you listen to something that came out of a marketing person's mouth. Ken Levine's mouth too. I mean, he markets the thing. Well, well, this is a complaint that Tyler had too. So I, I avoided any and all like promotion for the game, so this wasn't an issue I had at all. But I could see what how that can color your experience. I saw the initial trailer and knew I was going to play it from the initial trailer. So yeah, yeah. me too. But like I can, I I do remember from that trailer, like that first walkthrough of Columbia, like the differences between what they showed and what they said that would be, you know, capable. Like they made a big deal out of the fact that you didn't have to fight everybody you came across, which, frankly, kind of became bullshit after about ninety minutes into the game, where every combat sequence was required. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the final product of a game is always going to be wildly different, particularly when a game has been in development for a long time and is you know first shown several years before it's even released. But um, I think it's I think what we'll probably find out in the future. I think it's fair to guess this is that uh, this is not the game that Ken Levine and Irrational uh, originally envisioned making, uh, and what they made was I think still really good and really you know obviously resonant in its own way but i think uh not maybe not at the depth of maybe not in the emotional way we wanted but i think in a cerebral way i felt very satisfied by it particularly with how it uh tied everything together at the end and not to bring up that old argument that happened when the box art got released and how it's just this generic thing and the the comments came out about well you know we have to market it to the frat boys too i mean honestly i think being a victim of its success from Bioshock is they were kind of unknown. Irrational was. I played Freedom Force 1 and 2 from them. I never played System Shock, but, you know, I liked their work up to that point. Blown away by Bioshock, but they didn't really have any, I'm assuming, pressures to just kind of present the story in any different way than how they wanted it. I don't think Bioshock Infinite was compromised, but 
the fact that they had to do, again, that marketing perspective from the box art, even though they included the reversible artistic version, I think they did definitely, and that came out through stories, they cut a lot from the religious aspect, from the emotional aspect, towards the end of the game, which, you know, we could spend days talking about games that had elements taken out of it that maybe made the final product not as great as it could have been, but that's pointless. I guess for me, I'm just thinking that I loved Bioshock Infinite, but I think that the elements that they seem to focus on from Elizabeth herself to, um, like you put it, the optional combat and things were not as robust as I was wanting. But what I got out of it the most was the story overall and traversing the world. But eventually it just kind of broke down to be the same old, same old. But it was still the best of the same old, same old that I've played before. I will confess that there are certain uh, aspects of the game that seem to be compromised for marketability reasons. The going back now and looking at some of the gameplay videos... You know, there are certainly scenes that were cut. There were some changes in the UI that very clearly made it look more like Bioshock 1, maybe to try and force a continuity there where none exists until you've beaten the game. So this is probably a case where mass market appeal did do some harm to it, but I still think it's a fantastic accomplishment. I wish all mass market games could be like this. Conversely, I wish that Irrational would cut ties with Take-Two and Kickstarter something and just do whatever they want with it, because I imagine that would be completely incredible, and they would not have to answer to anyone but themselves as far as, you know, if they wanted to go off the deep end on the religious aspect or anything, uh, they wouldn't have somebody in, in marketing telling them, oh, well, we don't, we still want Mormons to play the game, guys, <laughs> so, or whatever. It's twice you've mentioned Mormons, I'm sensing a theme. <laughs> uh, there's okay. Comstock's house. Comstock's house looks exactly like the Mormon temple. Yeah, and there were some other parent, like the the whole idea of an American prophet. Hey, having just recently seen the Book of Mormon, I I get it. Man, I haven't seen that yet. Anyway, it's great. My point is, yeah, I'm mentioning Mormons a lot, but there are <laughs> definitely parallels to draw. I think that's the point of the whole podcast. Mormons, you guys. Yeah, we're actually just pushing our, our anti-Mormon <laughs> agenda here. That's the whole purpose of this podcast. So was Booker the Latter-day Saint then, when we really get down to it? <laughs> or was it Comstock? Because they're two sides of the same coin. <laughs> so let's get to that. Let's, let's just take it a step further. Who is the Latter-day Saint in the Latter-day Saints church? I'm okay, no, we're, we're done with that. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. That's the best segue I think we've ever had. We'll see if it makes it in. Yeah, I just need like a shut the fuck up Spencer button. And we'll... That is what I do when I edit, is I mute myself yeah. for a whole section. So, all right. You're out of your element. We'll fix it in post. We'll fix it in post. I think we should jump to the ending. And when I say the ending, I don't really mean like the denouement of the game, if you will, to use my terrible French accent, but more to like just talk about the game is making a statement because it's a Ken Levine game and because it's an irrational game. And that whole revelation comes to light from pretty much the moment you confront Comstock to the game's uh, ending credits. And the revelation comes, you know, from the story of what happened to Elizabeth's finger and why is she wearing the thimble. Which is something I bet a lot of the frat boys that might have picked up the game based on the box art didn't even notice the pinky finger was gone until it was talked about. <laughs> yeah, they probably did not notice. So what, what does it mean for you guys to have played that game knowing that you know, obviously, it's always the game was based around this whole idea of like infinite dimensions, infinite possibilities, infinite Bioshocks. 
which is, you know, there's no better example of that than when you are taking a rapture and, you know, the songbird is drowning out there, much like a big daddy would, if it wasn't, you know, capable of breathing water. Bad example, but you know what I mean. Like, Spoiler. I just want to throw out there, in the background of that scene, in the next tunnel, there is a uh, little sister crying over a dead big daddy that is visible behind songbird. Yeah. I did not see that. So just, you know, parallels and so forth. Yeah. So the whole point of the ending sequence was uh, Elizabeth showing you the player and I guess Booker the character. At, least, at the very least in this game, in this world, there are infinite possibilities. There are infinite choices and infinite outcomes that can lead to different scenarios in life. And uh, what the game made so interesting to me was like showing how if you make those things overlap, if you, sh- if you bridge those connections, all this crazy shit can happen. But at the same time, there's only really one way to resolve any of it. So you know, the game ends with the revelation that Booker has, just as a player does, at least in my case, that he is he is Comstock the whole time. That Comstock was born out of his desire to purge himself from his sins for you know the deeds he committed at the battle wound knee, uh, and that was him being born again as this uh, new person who became you know in turn a religious zealot, and that in fact trying to rescue Elizabeth this whole time or Anna, uh, his daughter, Booker's daughter. You're trying to rescue him, rescue her from another version of Booker. Like there, there never was this other villain. It was all just a different side of the same person. And really, it was an internal struggle over the choices that he made as a person. So, with that in mind, what what were your guys' impressions of the ending? Was there anything that you feel like I didn't interpret correctly? And what, what do you think really uh, is uh, the the overarching message behind all that? Uh, for me, my mouth fell open uh, the moment you got teleported back to Rapture. And just kind of stayed open the entire time, <laughs> uh, especially when they revealed Elizabeth was Kaiser Soze. Uh, no, <laughs> actually doing that, but yeah, it was it was kind of this incredible revelation where, yeah, there was not actually a conflict there. It was an internal conflict that was externalized just because Comstock's version accepted forgiveness and yours did not. And I mean, there's there's a lot of that theme of absolution that's kind of bouncing around in Infinite. Where, I mean, you have to get into the city by being baptized, and in a lot of the dialogue it suggests he's trying to forgive himself for uh, what happened to his daughter, and it, it still pains him a lot. It's very intriguing, the way that it plays with that, and it plays with the fact that he is the main villain, and I don't know, it's it's a little overwhelming to me. Again, when I was playing the uh, the epilogue, my mouth was just kind of hanging open the whole time, so... Yeah, it's a it's it's a really interesting fucking thing. <laughs> that it's, was it's just I don't know it's 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 kind of out there, but it's out there in a way that is very satisfying and very thought provoking. If Take Two is looking for a box quote for uh, Bioshock Infinite Game of the Year, <laughs> yeah, I would strongly suggest using Spencer's a quote. Fucking thing back there. <laughs> Spencer Tordov, Silicon Sasquatch. <laughs> Look, if I publish a book, then Sir Mixalot's tweet at me is going on the back of the book, which is lol yep. So And props for being real, the the true life story. Props for being real, yo. That that actually we should just title our next book that if we do another book. And then um to give all the royalties to that Facebook guy. Anyway. <laughs> I bet he liked the comment. Unfortunately we hit it. So now nobody will know what the context was. Oh, well. He was complaining about no grenades, probably. Yeah. So. No scope and stuff. So No takedowns. I guess my, my comment towards the ending and its feeling of resolution to me as a player, um, I want to make a short comment on just the overall part of itself and then ask a question to you guys. So 
when I played through the epilogue as well, my mouth was agape or agape, depending on your pronunciation. <laughs> if your pronunciation is wrong, <laughs> but go on. I was just about to say that. My favorite part was when Elizabeth takes you by the hand and shows you all of the infinite lighthouses. So Nick spoke to all of the infinites, and that's why the game is called Bioshock Infinite. Being that Elizabeth could open tears in the fabric of reality to other realities infinitely, uh, any choice you've ever made from brushing your teeth in the morning or not, which is disgusting, to, you know, uh, I don't know, buying a red car or a blue car. Just that's what the game says. Basically, all of those different realities exist. And I thought it was most effective when it said the constant is there is always a lighthouse. That was one of the first things she says when you then beat Songbird and then are transported to Rapture, see all this crazy stuff and go, oh my god, it actually is connected to Rapture. But not really, it's kind of more of a callback, which I'll be honest, I was a little disappointed in. I was kind of hoping there was some big tie-in to Bioshock just because I love that. I love to have a self-contained universe, but whatever. I will say that was the exact starting uh, area of Bioshock, just done in reverse. Right. I started out Bioshock recently because I'm intending to play through it, though, you know, I also have to edit things and work. But when you arrive in Rapture in the first one, the place where that bathysphere you took is closed like you came through ahead yep. in uh, in Infinite. So I found that pretty interesting. I really enjoy that, too. The fact that you take the other bathysphere yeah. uh, back up to the surface. There are two theories about that. In Bioshock, all of the recordings were speaking to only those with the genetic DNA makeup, be it cousins, nieces, or nephews, or whatever, of Andrew Ryan can use the bathysphere, which is, if you weren't paying attention in the first game, was the first clue that you, the player, Jack, are the son or whatever relative, if you didn't know at the time, of Andrew Ryan. That's the only reason the bathyspheres can work. Yet in Infinite, you and Elizabeth can use them or whatever. So that's like, okay, so maybe is Booker the opposite side of the coin or the or Elizabeth's child, Andrew Ryan, or some crap like that. So that's a theory. Or are they just that universe's version right. of Andrew Ryan, perhaps? Yeah. But either way, there's the theories of going to Rapture, and it's just the constant of there's always a lighthouse. So you go up in the bathysphere, you show up at the lighthouse from the first game, you can't go in that, but then you open the door and you go into this massive ocean filled with thousands of lighthouses just in the distance in front of you, this gorgeous sunset. And it's just this amazing visual of that idea of, you know, hey, anything is possible sort of idea, which I thought was more effective than, you know, just having her rip holes in this fabric of space-time. So that was all cool. I loved it. I was on board. And it just makes me, to get to the second part of what I was originally mentioning, to the ending, I'm cool with the ending. I liked it. I thought it was cyclical enough to where it comes back to the baptism of Booker, where you apparently, if you chose to be baptized, you became Comstock. You took the name of Comstock after your baptism, and then that's where you became this religious cell at built Columbia in one reality. <clears throat> Or if you didn't, you lived with your sins or tried to, became or stayed Booker and then sold your daughter Anna to the other reality version of yourself, Comstock, which set all the plans in motion for the game, etc. So that was great. I, I love that sort of weird stuff. I liked the final episode of Lost, for Christ's sake. A lot of people didn't, so I, I'm on board. But It was all a dog's dream, right? <laughs> yes, the eye of the dog. <laughs> My question to you guys then is, do you think that this whole idea of the constant 
for a Bioshock series. So not just the next game Irrational does, whatever it is, but for a Bioshock series. This idea that there's always a lighthouse as the constant, kind of, and tying it into the first Bioshock, kind of ruins the idea of a next Bioshock title, or where do you think they can go from there? Because it seems like they've opened the can of worms now, and all these possibilities can happen. It just seems like also a way to make it easy to do a bunch of DLC just for stuff that might have alternatively transpired. Uh, just to jump in, because I only have one thing to say, there will never be another Bioshock game. Not not for a long time. I was going to kind of ans- uh, ask the same question, but in a very uh, in a very joking and or trolling manner, <laughs> which was uh, when I when I first heard of Infinite, pretty much just before I decided I was going to, you know, of course, buy it and play it. I kind of imagined the the boardroom of uh <laughs> yeah the the boardroom at uh, irrational and Ken Levine is sitting there at the head of the table and he's like all right guys we did a city under the water what's the opposite of a city under the water and somebody says a city on the land no get out you're fired all right what's the opposite uh what about in the air yeah we're doing that <laughs> bioshock plausible it's a city within the ground <laughs> it's underground city there's a city on the moon bunker uh, bunker shock bunker shock yeah. uh so i'm in agreement with nick that there probably won't be another bioshock at least as long as take two doesn't force their hand because you know bioshock 2 happened and while i didn't hate it i thought it was a it was nice to see more of rapture even if the story was a little wonky that was kind of them forcing it forcing the issue uh, making there be more content when they had not intended there to be. I would say without interference, there probably won't be another Bioshock. But if Ken Levine can figure it out, how to do it, and still make it fresh and still make it interesting, I'm on board. I think that'd be great. I just don't think it's going to happen. DLC where you get to play catch with Andrew Ryan and you don't actually <laughs> kill him with a golf club. They'll make a Bioshock adventure game. You don't actually fight anybody. <laughs> You just say you're the little sister crawling through all of the tubes over Rapture. It's like a Dig Dug type of game. This is really... It'll be Sim Rapture, and it'll launch with always online DRM and be really bad. Will Cheetah Speed work? No. Cheetah Speed works in real <laughs> life, but I'll, I'll touch on that later. <laughs> just one last thing. So if Bioshock, the original, was really kind of about the notion of like freedom versus slavery and really uh, choice versus... Um, being controlled i thought infinite was saying that choice is also kind of irrelevant in its own way because no matter what there's going to be like this critical mass like the story will play out the same no matter what unless you take unless you get rid of the possibility of it ever taking place which you know obviously elizabeth isn't super stoked on because that means she's never born or is she (laughs) it was implied it was implied at the very very end the final post credits scene yeah but you know how that goes it's for interpretation so well yeah well after they've drowned booker they disappear one by one right right but then there is that stinger after the credits where it's like you're back in booker's office he kind of gets up groggily and hears her crying in her crib goes to see her and then it just goes to black i guess it's the implication i mean it's obviously very deliberate they didn't show her there but let's let's end with that what do you guys think that last epilogue scene was meant to say i think it's another i don't know if I'm being overly critical, I think it's just a, an adaptation that a lot of films, books, movies, TV do, where it's just, leave it to interpretation for the viewer. It's more fun that way instead of giving a definitive answer. Because when you're being drowned as as Booker, all the other alternate versions of Elizabeth fade away, but it cuts to black before ours, the one we've been playing with, does. I forgot about that. 
So there's that, and then the post-credits scene where, you know, you're in the office and Anna's crying. Okay, well, you could, if you're just going to go the obvious or the, the easiest route, like, well, yeah, it's just, you know, another reality. Maybe they live together happily ever after, where he never becomes either that version of Booker or Comstock, and then they just grow up together or something like that. But, of course, it's never going to be said, so I think that's the weakest part of the ending this uh, lack of specificity, and it's something that's a problem with me in all genres, even though I mentioned I like the Lost ending. I still like that, uh, or dislike a lot of it, where it just seems lazy storytelling. Well, hey, you know, we've had this crazy infinite possibility world, and you resolved the problem, so you never become this evil man, and everyone else, you know, fades away because they never existed. However, one still existed, or did they? They did, but maybe they didn't. Like that whole back and forth where it's just supposed to be fun from the writer's perspective to give that audience uh, a non-definitive answer. I hate that in general. I think it's bullshit. So that was my least favorite part of the ending like that. I think she exists. I think it just continues on to whatever you want to imagine it be. But maybe that's the comment where if you think that she exists still, then that's your infinite version of the ending. And then Nick's version is different. So is Spencer's. Ha ha. Sort of thing. I don't know. I mean, I could see it maybe being them trying to make it kind of open-ended. But I only really saw two possible interpretations of it. One being the happy ending. Oh, well, yeah, he's back with Elizabeth or Anna, I suppose. And that's fine. I took it. I decided to take Spencer's version of it, as you put it, was that you can't fight it. Like, I felt the implication was it was happening again anyway. Like, the possibility for it, at least, was there that this was all just going to start up again. Which is why the Lutises have that board with the heads and tails at the beginning. Yeah, precisely. So that was my take on it anyway. That was my interpretation, too, particularly because The Office was that same stark, you know, kind of like alcohol-tinged view. It was kind of staticky and weird. It was not suddenly you're back in his office for real. It was still the dreamlike office that you keep ending up in in the game. Yeah. So where does that leave us for the DLC? How do you think that's going to work? Personally, I think the DLC will be strongest if it's completely unrelated characters who are not Booker, but it's kind of anybody's guess. They haven't announced any of it. So maybe it'll be deleted scenes, maybe it'll be adding stuff to the middle of the game, which is the worst way to do DLC, in my opinion. A.K.A. Mass Effect. Mass Effect is a fine example of that, but... Assassin's Creed 2. There you go. But they have not come forward with anything on the DLC, so we'll see. They did announce that there will be some add-ons, though? Uh, I mean, you can buy a season pass, so there's going to be DLC... We don't know what it's going to consist of. But luckily there's no multiplayer, so we don't have to worry about that being a filler DLC. Okay, that's that's a whole separate topic. But basically, multiplayer that is a well-realized light edition, like diet version of the main game, does not bother me. I'll just say that categorically. But yeah, we don't know what the DLC is going to be. I, I guess what I like about it is, despite the fact that, you know, it, it, it deserves to have some criticism levied against it because it's, you know, it's a piece of work that's open to interpretation i just really enjoy the fact that i finally have found a game that like made me keep like mulling it over after i'd finished it for quite some time like it's hard to find books or movies that you can do that with very very frequently so even more so rare in games considering that like most games are about like skill shots and (laughs) like cutting head dudes heads off with chainsaws so oh my god no scope yeah so it was nice it was a nice 
a nice thing. I really, I really like how consistent it was in delivering its message and building its themes and making the player kind of get invested in this sort of game of logic and then at the end kind of throwing them haplessly into the abyss. It was a nice touch. And I will say, uh, without hesitation, regardless of what the DLC is, I'm eager to see what Irrational comes up with next. And, you know, maybe it'll be another six years down the line, but I'm on board. Waiting for Freedom Force 3. <laughs> yes. Freedom Force 3, the gritty modern shooter. Set in a desert. The folly of choice. The, the Freedom Force is the army. <laughs> but are you really a free force? <laughs> God damn it. Yeah, I think that'll do it for us. Uh, thanks, guys, for uh, joining once again for this conversation that we had. If you listen to this whole podcast without playing Bioshock Infinite, you should probably go give yourself some brain damage and uh, go play the game so as to not ruin it for yourself. Actually, don't do that. Just um, just play it. Yeah. All we can ask is, would you kindly subscribe to this podcast on iTunes? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do that, because like, we post updates and... Uh, <laughs> We have a lot more to talk about in the future, I'm sure. So Mind control. Yeah. Also, crows. Also, crows. Crows, game of the year. Hashtag crows, everyone. Look for it. Yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> the dark man is coming. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> all right. Thanks, guys. We will uh, be back soon. Thank you. Thank you. The Silicon Sasquatch Podcast is a production of SiliconSasquatch.com. Our panelists for this episode were Nick Cummings, Spencer Tordoff, and Aaron Thayer. And the remainder of our editorial staff is Tyler Martin and Doug Bonham. If you'd like to check out more of our work, SiliconSasquatch.com is the address. And if you'd like to get in touch with any of us personally, our name, at SiliconSasquatch.com, so for example, Spencer, at SiliconSasquatch.com, is the email address you need to use. Thank you for listening. We hope you tune in again. Oh, I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure.